Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the latest episode of Here Comes the Pain. I'm your host, Joel Payne. Today, I'm excited because we have a very special guest who is somebody who means a great deal to me and I think is a great person to talk to given what's happening in the country and also just given some of the things historically that we are dealing with as a society right now. And I'm talking about Chris Matthews, the former moderator of MSNBC Hardball, um, national political voice, former staffer to Jimmy Carter, uh, former uh, columnist with the San Francisco Examiner, I believe, um, and many, many other accolades that I'm probably missing a few. Chris, thank you for joining me. Thank you. You missed my six years as top aide to Tip O'Neill. That was an experience right there. And you know what, Chris? I should know better. I'm a I'm a former Senate staffer myself, so uh, I should I should know better than to leave out, uh, you know, the the congressional experience there as well. Yes, you were a key aide to Tip O'Neill as well. So um, I hope to talk about some of that a little bit later in our conversation. Um, I wanted to start though with where we are right now as a country, and you know, you and I had a number of good conversations on Hardball just about society and how it played into politics. And uh, that's why I, I was so interested to have this conversation with you. You wrote for the, yeah. for the Philadelphia Inquirer a few days ago, um, talking about comparing this moment to 1968. And I think of you as one of the foremost um, kind of social historians on what happened in 1968. Can you talk about 68, your observations about that period of time, comparing it to now? And what might be similar to what we experienced then, and what's different than what we're experiencing now? Well, you know, I uh, I was studying in the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill stacks. I like to always I always like to go down to the stacks to study for some reason, just get away from all the other influences. And somebody came up to me. This is April fourth, nineteen sixty-eight, and said, "Dr. King's been killed." You know, and it only been uh, five years after Kennedy had been assassinated, Jack Kennedy. And, you know, I'm, I was sort of isolated from that. I'm um, sort of in academia. I'm on a beautiful campus. Uh, it just begun to be integrated, I guess. Um, and, uh, but when I read about Bobby Kennedy, he didn't insulate himself. He went right to uh, the Broadway neighborhood of Indianapolis, a fairly tough neighborhood, African-American neighborhood. And he, he had to be the one to tell them, because this was not the day of social media or cell phones. I mean, people didn't know everything immediately in those days. You waited for the evening news. Or you turned on the, you happened to be listening to the radio when the news came on. Um, and so he was, I, I had the NBC tape, and he's asking his host up on the platform. And the police wouldn't even go in with him, because they were, think about this, the cops were afraid to go in this neighborhood in that moment. And he goes in there and he says to the guy, do they know yet? Do they know about Dr. King? You can hear it on the mic. And his host says, no, they don't know. You know, you got to tell them. So Bobby Kennedy had to tell this crowd that, the, you know, the greatest hero of those people's lives had just been shot by a white guy. And then I thought rather awkwardly at the time, and now I think awkwardness is good sometimes. He said, you know, my brother was killed by a white guy. It sounds almost stupid because it wasn't like a racial killing. But I think it was his sort of, genuine way to try to connect with pain you know and, and, and sometimes maybe the ineloquent is better than the eloquent well and chris you talked about I think trump says trump says you got to choose between toughness and empathy that's bs every human being knows you have to have toughness at certain times and empathy and sometimes at the same time and you know um they had the nerve to go in there and face that crowd knowing they could have done anything they wanted to him short of mayhem, but they would have let him know what they felt. He would not have been happy coming out of there. And they just looked at him like, well, this is terrible news. And I'll remember, I guess you told me. But I think that's what toughness is. Real courage is facing reality you know, and, and taking blame, even if it's social blame. You know? Chris, you know, you talk about that Bobby Kennedy example. Indianapolis was the only city, really the only major city in America that evening that really didn't 
go up in flames. Um, I believe it was either limited or no damage to the riots. And, you know, a lot of people credit Kennedy's speech and how he calmed, even with those awkward words that you talk about, he calmed that neighborhood. Talk a little bit about just the importance of leadership in a moment like that, right? Like what, what people are looking for. They're not necessarily looking for somebody to have the right answer. They're kind of just looking for somebody to fill the void, right? Yeah, when I was growing up, the um, I always liked the rule of showing up, you know, uh, because when I grew up, maybe this is almost mythical in my memory, uh, but there was a four-alarm four fire downtown in Philadelphia. I grew up in Philly, right on the border, and, and in the city limits. I was in the city, and but downtown there'd be a fire, some old building, and inevitably, the evening news that night, 11 o'clock news, you'd have the mayor fire commission, the police commission, all standing on the curb across the street. It was almost like a like a Superman comic scene, you know, like the downtown mayor and the police chief showing. I think people expect people to show up and, and to be there when there's when there's something the public is face a fire for example or they want they, they wanted they want to know that you're you're there and you're taking accountability and, and you're going to tell them, you know, I think the fire will be out by 15 minutes. I think we've got it under control. I think we've, we don't know what's caused it yet. We think it might be arson. Of all people who did that really well in 9-11, and nobody wants to hear this today, was Rudy Giuliani. I mean, he came out on the street corner, and he had dust all over him. And he was talking about anthrax, one of these ancillary uh, problems that was coming on at that time. And people, big celebrities were getting letters there with powder in them. And he said, I think we've got this case, this many cases of that, and maybe another one. He was giving us the news as he got it. Boy, do we love that. That's why this guy, Andrew Cuomo, is so good. He gives us the news in context to what we need to know, what, we, what they know, right away. Remember the Godfather line? I mean, the Godfather were always comparing things to the Godfather, but Tom Hagen talks to the big shot in Hollywood. He said, my boss insists on getting bad news immediately. <laughs> Remember, and it's like, I go tell him that you just, that's when the horse head gets into the bed and all that. But that was a scene where I think most people want to hear the bad news immediately. They don't want to hear some politician engaging in, uh, you know, rolling disclosures, we call it politics. I'll let you know when I feel like letting you know. Or I'll let you know when I can't keep it from you any longer. You know how it works, Joel. And yeah. They'll tell you they got in trouble the day after they got in trouble. Thank you. But we'd like to have done the day before you got in trouble. Then it would have been helpful to us. Uh, uh, but I think Trump, you know, I'm not going to spend all this on... Trump going to that church really wasn't telling us the problem. He was, he was, uh, as I used to say after the Civil War, waving the bloody shirt. You know, uh, that wasn't helpful. Uh, and then going over to the John, John Paul II uh, memorial over at the Catholic University, uh, standing there for no reason, uh, just to enrage people. And um, I don't know whether he could have walked into a, a neighborhood or walked before that crowd. I don't know if it had gotten too bad by then. His reputation was too too bad. Um, but um, people do like to have a chance to talk to the leaders. Usually they just want to yell at them. Chris, also kind of going back to 1968, you know, I think the natural comparison people make is between Nixon and Trump, right? And, and I actually, I don't think that's an apt comparison, given the fact that, one, Nixon was the challenger, right? So the law and order case was really... He was a he was he was a voice from outside the, the institution at that point. Trump is the institution. He is this is his government. This yeah. is of his doing. So I think that's a fundamental difference. Um, do you see similarities between there Nixon and Trump in that way? There is a similarity. Uh, you know, you never know what's in another man's heart. First of all, you and I know that. You're younger than me. I'm older than you. It doesn't matter. It's very you can't read anybody's heart. You can't. Um, you just can't. Both, I think, use it for political reasons. And that's all that matters. Uh, Nixon had been in the 50s, a member of the NAACP, a friend of Whitney Young, had, got, had, met, uh, had met Dr. King. Uh, he called uh, Dr. King. He, he called was, Dr. King, right? And, and called Coretta Scott King, I believe, when he was in uh, Montgomery Jail. But he, but, he but he had a relationship with King. Yeah, he did. And let me say about this. He was the one as vice president of the United States, who's also, of course, president of the Senate, who tried to get rid of the filibuster rule in 1957 when the Senate came in as second term as vice president. And the liberal Democrats went along with the segregationists because there was a little deal in those days between the liberals and the segregationists. 
and they kept the filibuster rule for the segregationists. It's ironic to believe, but that's what in fact happened. Uh, Nixon was much better on civil rights than Kennedy. I mean, not better, but he was good in the 50s. The Republicans were the party, basically, Everett Dirksen that gave uh, Lyndon Johnson his, his uh, supermajority in 1964 from the Civil Rights Bill. But Nixon, by 68, was using the Southern strategy. Apparently, he went into Atlanta one day at lunchtime. And you know big cities in the south and the north. At lunchtime, they tend to be more white. All the suburbanites are in town. They're all working in town. Uh, they come out in the street corner. And Nixon said, oh, they're all cheering me. I can win the south. I can win Georgia. And, of course, blacks weren't really allowed to vote back in that, in, even in 68 that much. So he thought he was going to carry the south. So he wanted the southern strategy. And he did it for all the political worst reasons. I think that's more Trump, but I don't know Trump. He's probably, you know, I'm not going to defend him. I think he's just, he's just raising the, the race card. He did it. He did it this week. That's what he did. It was brazen. I agree. Two more questions about this. Then I want to advance the conversation to talk about some other current events. One, um, you know, just talking about Trump here, I think what a lot of the conventional wisdom politically is that, this could serve to his advantage eventually if there's unrest continually rolling unrest in the streets that that silent majority that he's talked about and that you referenced in your article that they will rise up the same coalition that elected him in 16 will come back to him a lot of people in the middle a lot of moderates etc do you think there is a scenario where what is happening the anger the righteous indignation and anger can that come back to to help Trump eventually, or has this eventually has this ultimately gotten to a place where Trump cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube here? Well, you know, um, the, the Frank Rizzo statue was just taken down in Philadelphia this week. That's a kind of an interesting uh, landmark and uh, a milestone. Rizzo got elected twice by as a Democrat. Okay. Let's get this straight. Let's not make one party the good guy all the time here. He had elected as a Democrat. A lot of Italian-Americans supported the Irish-American. A lot of cops liked them. Firemen liked them. We know the, the usual brigade that would like a guy like a two-fisted guy like him. But eventually that was too much. And he, he needed to turn down. You remember the statistics. He needed When he ran the third time, he needed something like 87% of the white vote to win. At some point, you need to have some Herculean number. Uh, of, of white, angry white people. But you're not going to find that many. First of all, they're liberal whites, obviously. And there are union member whites who vote with the union. And there are other people that just vote with the political organization. I mean, I, and not everybody's fitting into an easy box here. So to come up with that kind of a number, he would have to sweep the angry white vote by, what are we talking about here? Some incredible number. And I, I, that's what I think, because a lot of people are, are afraid now. I think, the, the, look, I think... In 16, he had a couple things going for him. He was using resentment against the academic elite, the people with great degrees and academic advantages, Hillary Clinton being personification, who they thought looked upon them as deplorables and looked down on them. I mean, you know, even Obama, who I think is great, would say that they cling to their guns and their religion. You know, it was, that's a kind of a loose statement. And when a working guy hears that, or working with it, oh, I didn't, I didn't get to go to Harvard or Yale Law, but, you know, Okay, I have religion. Religion is not something I cling to. I have to believe in it. It's my faith. Don't make fun of my religion. And um, and so I think I think there's a lot of that social resentment back in '16 against Clinton. And uh, now I don't think the governing I don't think the governing emotion right now is is resentment. I think it's a little bit of fear, a little bit of anger, uh, a little bit of uh, this isn't working. This thing isn't working. And as George Will said in his column this week, a conservative George Will, he said the, the phrase malignant buffoon is no longer an oxymoron. <laughs> I mean, this guy Trump is, is evil as well as comical. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure people are going to vote for a, a, a bad clown. But you know what? I think you're asking the right questions about November because here we are in June. Uh, if you looked at the 1968 in June, it was Bobby against Gene McCarthy. If you look at it in, in November, it was Nixon against Humphrey. And um, you know what I mean? I do. And Trump versus uh, 
Biden looks a lot more like Dixon than Humphrey. I, I tend to agree with that. I want to transition the conversation a little bit. Still want to on, on this topic of what's going on in the world right now, but actually through the lens of Biden, because, you know, I think maybe a false I've said this before and I've written this before. A, a false idea that exists out there is that Biden automatically wins over the favor of the folks who are in the streets every night and who are just pissed off about what's going on. And I actually don't I think that those folks who have spent the last week and a half every night in the streets screaming for change, I don't think they have confidence in either political party. I think they are fully disengaged from the process or not fully, but I think they are mostly disengaged and they have zero trust for any institutional remedies. So I say that to say, what is the what is either the opportunity or the challenge for Biden to take the energy, which is kind of on his side of the political spectrum? and turn that into real support for him in November or turn that against the president? Well, you know what I know, Joel, his biggest megaphone will come August 1st when he chooses a running mate. And, uh, and actions will be louder than words. And whoever he picks has to meet a couple of standards. One, he's already set himself, uh, a woman. Uh, and that's probably whatever I thought of the tactic of doing that in that debate with Bernie Sanders, which I thought was tactical, just to get the headline that night. But, you know, there's a great phrase that Jack Kennedy used about the little kid who wanted to get over a wall. He says, well, he wants to climb over this wall. So he throws his cap over the wall, so he has to go collect his hat. So he's got to go over the wall. <laughs> so when he said, I'm going to pick a woman, he's going to go over that wall. He's got to pick a woman. And maybe if he hadn't done that, given all these developments with the governors and Andrew Cuomo and all this other stuff, he might not have picked a woman, but he's going to do it now. So he threw his cap over the wall. So that's the first statement, uh, which he's going to have to meet. He's not going to get out of that one. And probably doesn't want to. So when he picks a woman, that's going to be changing right there. But is he going to pick? I don't think he's going to pick Klobuchar uh, now because I just think the action of history is, and her background as a prosecutor, as a local prosecutor, is a real problem right now because of the. Uh, you know, the George Floyd situation. I mean, it's just, it's nowhere you want to be in that position of being defending the prosecutions out there, or the lack of prosecutions. Although now Keith has taken over. So, you know, who knows? Keith's going to be the big, the big voice for the next several months out there, I think. Yeah, and I think Clyburn, who is obviously, Clyburn, who's viewed as a, an influencer here, has already essentially said that Klobuchar is a non-starter. Yeah, well, he, I, I would think, well, you and I look at it. I think there'll be three people in the room matter james clyburn who's really been a wonderful man all these years i've always had him on the show and i've always found him to be you know serious historic he's been through the pain of the struggle he's he's like the guy you want he's like a, a, a biblical prophet he's been through everything and not someone to be trifled with yeah <laughs> yeah nor should he be and he, he, he brought him back from from a lot of things happened that week and i think nevada the fact that bernie sanders did so well out there realized that this was the choice they had to make and and probably the failure of Bloomberg left them really with a binary choice. It's either going to be Biden or it's going to be Bernie and that really helped Biden. Uh, but I think Clyburn bringing out the vote and then it was Super Tuesday. I remember hearing before before uh, South Carolina, I was hearing, oh, if he went, if Biden pulls it off with a large African-American vote, then, it, then Super Tuesday and all those deep South states will follow. And, you know, they did. It's one of the times the predictions were right. You know, Mississippi out school, you know, the cotton culture, the old deep south, there's a lot of African-American population, and people can vote now. It, it really did make all the difference. So I think he's going to pick someone of color, and I don't think he's a perfect candidate. I, I, you can always say that we, we live in a world of politics, which is always imperfect. I think I'll go with the money. I think it's going to be Harris because of a lot of reasons. I think there's a tradition in this country of picking presidents of governors and senators and generals, I suppose. That's been the tradition, that that's the threshold. I think, uh, you know, Val Demings would be great. I think Mayor Bonds was great. I just got to know her a bit. Uh, I don't think Stacey will make it. I don't think so, but uh, I think it's going to be someone to come for the following reasons. The mainstream press, the second after he doesn't pick a woman of color, will be, will be detailing reporters all across the country to talk to every woman of color who could have been picked and wasn't. And it'll just be a spread of bad news for two weeks. Just 
two weeks of how come that how am I not carrying bass or how come this person why not this other person so many good candidates uh, but but what Harris has got going for us he's been in the debates he's tussled with him over busing um, she uh, she's the right age she's got that interesting background it's not deep south of course it's not classic African American it's not like most people we knew growing up with it's that sort of immigrant mixture of uh, Jamaican and uh, Indian she did go to Howard I think was a real statement on her part I'm going to join the African American community uh, I think there's so many sociometric overlays to deal with you know, so sure. many things to think about but I don't think there is a perfect candidate that people wouldn't say well wait a minute he just did that because of identity politics or he just did that uh, but God you know can I posit a theory to you, Chris? Because I know these people. I, I, I just have enough conversations with Kamala to realize that she's a very well, sorry, well-rounded person, meaning she can talk about things besides politics, which always makes me happy. You know, like you and I, if you can talk to somebody about something besides their ambition, <laughs> they're okay to deal with. I just don't want to talk about your ambition all the time. I understand. And, um, she's, got that going. she's got that going for her. I think she'd be... Uh, an appealing candidate. I don't think she'd, you never know. Some people are big in it and it would hurt some people. You know, I've looked at her numbers. They're low, both positive and negative. They're low, uh, larger, high, positive and negative. I don't think she would have a big impact. I don't think she'd cost them the election in Pennsylvania, which is pretty conservative culturally. Um, I don't think, uh, I think she'd be, I think she'd be a good vice president. I think Biden wants somebody like Biden, somebody who will work down the hall from him. When he needs them, he calls them in the office and they talk it over. He doesn't want somebody out giving speeches that he has to deal with. And, you know, he doesn't want to have somebody frowning when they go out to stage together. You know what he doesn't want. He wants somebody that's going to say, great idea, Joe. Let me posit, Chris, let me posit a theory. I'm a positive theory to you. So I think... Um, obviously, you and I, I think, have talked a number of times about the centrality of the African-American vote to whomever the Democratic nominee is this time. And I think what you just said supports that. So if if African-Americans ultimately decided, even though Joe Biden might not be like the perfect candidate from central casting, he's the guy that we need to do the job right now. I have talked to a lot of African-Americans and look, I, I'm not I, I, I didn't. I didn't I didn't call up um, one of the top pollsters to do this. This is just anecdotal. Um, a number of African-Americans who are like I would call non-elites, right, rank and file African-American voters. They've told me, hey, Joe Biden was sent to do a job. If he needs Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, um, you know, a non-person of color to get the job done, we will support that. Because ultimately, all that matters is the existential threat in the White House. I've talked to a number of what I would call black elites, thought leaders, frankly, people like myself, people who've worked in high levels of politics, people who go on TV, who've said he will lose the heart and soul of the African-American community if he does not have a representative of the community on his ticket. It's an interesting place he's in because I could argue both points. You know, you're on to something. There's probably a broader uh, application of what you've just come up How are the interests of the leadership class, opinion-leading class, different than the average person who has to put food on the table, who has to pay tuition bills, uh, survive? The, and even middle-class people are endangered. Obviously, with 40 million people out of work. That's a lot of middle-class people, formerly middle-class. I tell you, I think that's just difference of interest. I think the interest, the, re, the leaders want to be respected as leaders, and they think the deal he made was with leaders made, or the deal he should have. Uh, it should be respect for his colleagues in, in politics. Uh, I'm not sure, but you're onto something there. I think it's, um, I'm sure when I go for my job tonight, I'll think about other examples of the elite versus the regular. Clearly the elite have different interests. They, they're much more interested in social issues, you know, same-sex marriage, things like that, abortion rights. They just seem to talk more about them than the average person. We've asked them, what do you have to face in life? Uh, they just, they, the topics are different. Um, uh, they also want to get, they want to break the glass ceiling. Let's be honest about it. Let's get that ceiling broken. You know, open the doors so we can all get to agree. You know, I always, as a Roman Catholic, I always talk about, I always bring up, like, you know, 
In 60, it was the biggest door in the world you couldn't get to if you're an RC. You know, anywhere around the county. In 64, the Republicans ran a, a Catholic, William Miller, for vice president, and nobody noticed. It never came up. So, uh, I don't know. I think we've evolved at that level of elite, liter, elite level of leadership, leadership that there'd be no brouhaha about Harris. I just don't think. She may not turn on the lights for everybody. She may not excite the regular person. My hunch is that the elite, as you talked about them, would accept and say, okay, I know what you're doing here. She would be, a, she would be an appealing candidate. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's all into the tricky business of ethnicity and... Uh, the, the, and what people slavery, what people expect when they go to the voting slavery. booth? Yeah, we haven't had a president from the legacy of slavery. But Michelle Obama is much more representative, of course, we can say, of the intermigration and everything. And that she was more she's more of a classic American person uh, personality. Uh, I think, by the way, somebody said the other day, Ed Rendell. I can speak. I was, I was talking to the former governor the other day. He said he says it doesn't. He, he's not sure it matters the way. I think it does about a person of color on the ticket. He says the two most important personalities of the campaign will be Barack and Michelle. If they go out there and barnstorm, barnstorm, I don't mean show up, I mean barnstorm like Eisenhower did for Nixon, and go around the country and say, this is the guy who has to win for our country, and we must be Trump. Boy, if he does that, I'm chilling, thinking that, I'm getting thrilled. The him going into big cities like Philly and going down at Love Circle down there and with a, you know, 100,000 people in the crowd. I think he could shake people into getting to the polls. Chris, I'd argue, I'd argue he did that in 2016. That's what's, you know, and I worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. I was there in Charlotte. Um, I know he was in Philly. I know he was in Detroit. He was, he and Michelle were in those big cities. How come it didn't work? It didn't work. I mean, just my editorializing on that is, I think um, it didn't work because particularly African-American voters were had not wrapped their arms around the idea that they could no longer cast a ballot for Barack Obama. And the the bet that we made on the Hillary Clinton campaign was that they were going to vote for her as almost like a third Obama term. And it was it look it made sense if you look at the numbers and if you think about political theory, but it just did not compute. I also think the fact that it was the first election after Obama, there was a letdown that's hard to replicate yeah. now. We're in a different moment now. At that moment, trying to convince somebody voting for Hillary Clinton is voting for Barack Obama. That's hard. And that makes up the margins that we lost in Milwaukee, Detroit, Philadelphia. I'm just thinking maybe there's a middle way here. That, uh, I agree with you about the list. I'm not in the community, but I, I can imagine where you had the chance to have big history twice <clears throat> against people who might not want that history. That's a good fight. And then you get this time... You got a president who disdains you. And in so many sort of un unstated ways, he doesn't. He disdains. He disdains a lot of people, but that, that large group of Americans he disdains. Chris, talk about, talk about that for a second. He, you say he disdains you. I actually think, and I want you to expound on this, I think he disdains Barack Obama and what Barack Obama stands for. And I think that's what's so galling to he and his supporters I think it's no accident that he was the president okay. after Obama. Let me, let me try to explain uh, race from a white perspective. My hunch, and since I, I'm not a working guy, I've been middle, middle, upper middle class, growing up, my father's middle, I end up upper middle. I've never had those kind of class problems, challenges. Uh, but I think there's a sense among the working white people who haven't had advantages. They, they, they don't get 750s on their SATs if they even take the SATs. They don't have uh, that polish that comes from a, a quality education, a really quality education, uh, if any higher education at all. And then they see a guy who does have all that polish and all that articulation, Obama. He's an American success story. Are they saying to themselves, how did I blow it? How come I couldn't do this? How come I'm not there? He's there, why not me? I don't know the psychology of that. But there's something there that rubs them, embarrasses them, hurts them. It's so broad you have to acknowledge it. It's, for some reason, Trump seems to embody that. I don't know why. 
he did go to Wharton. He told us 10 million times. He went to Penn. He's told us. He went to the best school in the country. He told us that so many times. But he acts like somehow Obama's incredible success, his wonderful marriage, uh, which is just wonderful from on the outside looking in. It's just an amazing marriage, amazing kids, amazing stability, a home life that seems to be real. In fact, I think he enjoyed his home life too much as president. He didn't want to hang out with politicians. <laughs> he didn't want to go hang out with Mr. That's McConnell. right. That was a criticism. Yeah. Yeah, but he was always at home enjoying things, you know, Papa Bear, you know, the father and two daughters. It was great. Um, but um, I think, I think, I look at those pictures of him at the, the press dinner. You've seen a lot of times where he's, he's making fun of him about meatloaf and everything and making fun about all that hip-hop stuff and, you know, the president is delightful at that light touch, that light, and we call it Harvard humor, that clever touching the nerves endings of your enemy. <laughs> and you can almost do it like it's not negative because, oh, did I offend you with that? Oh, I didn't mean to. It's like British humor. It's like that. So, and he just touched those nerve endings of Trump. And you see Trump stewing. It's almost like people saying, well, that's when he decided to run again. And then making up the lie about him being an illegal immigrant from Kenya, this far-fetched story about this white woman marries an African guy and then runs over to Africa to have the kid over there so she can have the kid over there so that she can sneak back and have it announced in Hawaii that it was being born, the kid was being born in Hawaii. But something is so ridiculous that you can't even follow it. Why would she do that? Um, I think so you're... 35 years later, and then she named Barack Hussein Obama is going to be president. <laughs> Why wouldn't she call him Joe Brown or but but you know Chris what's Chris what's interesting about that is it it's it's galling to a Donald Trump that that could happen because the idea of a of kind of this long shot American story happening and not being driven by having your dad give you a million dollar loan or the the fact that it's a this you know this <laughs> this half half black half white guy who was raised in Kansas and Hawaii and he's Harvard educated and he he essentially did all the things that Trump's money was supposed to do for him. But it didn't give him it didn't give Trump the refinement that it gave Obama. Obama turned out to be this finished product that Trump has been trying to buy into his entire life. And here's the uh, bad irony here. It's not just Trump. It's who he's playing to. And he's playing to people that don't like to see this. And if you think about a guy, forget ethnicity or race for a second, you go, okay, the guy goes as a quality education. Um, he uh, goes, marries the girl he's in love with. They're young people that get married. They're not money grubbers. They, they devote themselves to, uh, to uh, community leadership. Uh, they do everything right, never get in any trouble with anybody, the law or ethics. Or, do it, live a perfect life. Go to church every Sunday. Everything, everything about them is what the people on the gospel right say is what we should do with our lives. Everything. I mean, this guy is pristine. He's never spit on a sidewalk. I mean, I don't know. Come up with it. What has he? He's never done anything. And and they got to say, well, this is what we tell our kids to be like. Damn it. He's there. He's better than us. I think it's some weird moral resentment of the guy who's doing what we say we want us to do. And um, I keep telling I say, when are you going to cut this guy a break? Isn't he what we want? I mean, whatever it's the freak. He's not that much of a lefty. So don't tell me it's that. Um, he's been reasonably compromises. He, he, he did ACA because it was a compromise. It was the Heritage Foundation bill. Exactly. <laughs> what do you want? Uh, and if he, if he ever made a mistake like he did with the beer summit, he would correct that too if he thought he, made, he was a little too uh, militant or for a second. I mean, he was always modulating. And actually governed from the middle, governed from the middle essentially for the last five years he was in office, I'd argue. Um, when well, you had, like Reagan did. Yeah. Now, let's give credit here because good politicians know wherever they come from, you know, we're like the French, we're like, I don't know any other country like ours, but we're, we have such a, a true north near the center. You know, Roosevelt campaigned as a, as a moderate. He was going to cut the government spending. He was going to cut the government payroll. He ended up doing what he had to do. But then he had focused everything on the war. You know, Reagan came in, he cut taxes, but he basically went to the center on a lot of things. Um, I know I was there. This country, I think Biden, if he gets in there, will try to do everything he can 
in alliance with Bernie Sanders and the progressives. What's going to stop him from going too far, which is probably in a way good, is that he will have a Republican opposition with the pedal busters. Mitch McConnell and 48 votes. I think it's increasingly, by the way, looking like he's going to have a Democratic Senate, too. I think there's yeah, a, I think he might. He might. But Mitch McConnell, who's won narrowly, will have 48 votes probably. And the difference, here's where George Will's interesting. He wrote a column this week. And so did George Will. He said, if you go out there and do what I want you to do, vote against all Republican candidates this time, you will send such a message to that Republican caucus. You know? The, the wind has changed, guys. Trump's leaving. He's already gone, maybe. And uh, you uh, you better say change your job. So I think it's going to be an interesting... I would love to see the old Senate come back and negotiate these things and do it and, and get something done because, uh, I mean, I have argument with people on the campaign like this. I said, the, the filibuster is still there. There's still such a thing as an institutionalist Democrat as well as an institutionalist Republican. They're going to keep the filibuster. They're right to unlimited debate. And I think... You have to assume you can't get 60 votes for a real restructuring of our society. What you can do is get huge changes in taxes. You can probably get a big change in Medicare eligibility, probably big changes in uh, in the student loan programs. Anything to do with fiscal stuff, I think you can probably get done in, uh, in re- reconciliation, which is just 50 votes plus the VP. They get a lot done. I think that's right. Chris, one more question about 2020, and then I want to end our conversation talking a little biographical stuff about you. Hey, I'm going to ask you, Joel. Sure. Who is going to be the number one? Who's going to pick for number two? I say Harris. I think think your hunch is right. I think think Harris is probably – safest is the wrong word. She is the – she is to most Democrats what they want her to be um, in terms of both her racial background, her politics, um, how she – you know she's vetted. She's not a new person, but she she is a new she is a new voice somewhat nationally. But she's not so new that she's scary. Um, I think, and she has an existing relationship with the former vice president. So I think if you had money on this in Vegas and you wanted to put it on somebody, it seems like Senator Harris would be a person to put it on. I I, I was thinking probably before the moment we're in right now, this you know kind of latest spate of police violence. Um, Val Demings, I wonder her yeah. background as a law enforcement officer. And look, Kamala Harris, she was a prosecutor, so it it, it doesn't it doesn't it skip over her. But I think I wonder if Demings, as a law enforcement officer, if that kind of confuses a signal um, for the former vice president. And the last thing I'll, I'll say about Stacey Abrams, who I have a really high regard for, um, I can't tell whether the outward. Um, you know, um, kind of going after the vice president yeah. job. I don't. I don't know if that helped or hurt. It does feel like the fellow candidate candidates mimicked um, her style in terms of going after it. So she may have been a trendsetter. Yeah. Generally speaking, and maybe I'm a little too stodgy and traditionalist. I don't think you go after that job that nakedly. Um, I think that there's a little bit more finesse to it, but. Um, you know, if you told me three months ago that we'd be stuck in our houses for three months and that we'd be looking at two weeks of protest, I'd have been wrong about that, too. So things are changing. Well, I agree with you. I, I, give me a half minute because I have something I've been thinking about on this. I've given a lot of graduation speeches, like 35 of them, maybe 40, <clears throat> universities, colleges, a couple of high schools. And one of my messages was we all tell the same speech over and over again, as you know. And, and one thing I always say is ask. I say that... Um, uh, especially if you're a woman or minority and haven't, hasn't been offered something naturally. You're not naturally on the short list. <laughs> if you don't ask, you're saying no to yourself. Never say no to yourself. Now, maybe, and certainly I believe that, I really believe that show up for the job. If you can avoid the email, get there in person, at least before the corona or afterwards. Get there, show up, let them say no to you, make your case. You've got to say yes to yourself first. And generally, I absolutely believe in that because the easiest thing for the want to put it this way, the white guy, uh, to ignore you is not to know about you. So, uh, and pretend you're not there. Don't let them get away with that. And I really think showing up, asking for it. And by the way, once somebody hires you, you become their biggest bragging point. I mean, oh, I got her first job. I got him his first job. And I'm telling you, it's a strong Machiavellian principle. People remember favors more than they remember gratitude. They always remember who they help. They often forget who helped them. This is just Machiavellian. So on that part, but she's on the cover of the Washington Post magazine this week. 
I mean, how many VP applicants have been that dramatic? You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, look, she's certainly um, she's talented. Um, I don't I don't want to I want to make a comparison here, and I don't want I want to be very clear. I'm not comparing her to this person that I'm going to name, but I think similar to how Sarah Palin was a kind of a new person out of nowhere for a lot of Republicans. Stacey Abrams has probably higher name ID with Democrats, but you could argue that in terms of like a generational shift, she represents that, but she's also not vetted in the way that Palin wasn't vetted. And I could see in this moment where you've got a presidential candidate in Joe Biden who is pretty risk averse, I I wonder how that plays. Again, I think Stacey Abrams could probably do the job but there are she is she is one of the best people we could have as the face of the democratic party i say that as a democrat but you know i think that there are some some challenges there that i think the biden team are probably aware of and are considering um chris i want to ask you well, one more of, yeah a but, of, there's a lot of uh, what's the right consolation prizes in this business the trouble is you don't have conventions anymore but at the convention you would have her put biden's name in nomination which is the big starring role, you know, the big, the big tent. You're there. You're giving the speech. Everybody in the country is watching. Uh, you can make her. You know, and she doesn't talk much about it. Maybe a, to avoid this elitist aloofness that I was talking about. She went to Yale Law. I mean, I mean that's really impressive. And she doesn't walk around and she doesn't walk around bragging on that. She just doesn't. But most people do. I think that's a strategy. I think that's a strategy, Chris. I think there's a reason why she doesn't talk about it. One more 2020 question for you, and then let's talk about you to close out. Um, do you think that this is already a referendum on Trump? And if so, does is that is that best case scenario for Biden, or is that a problem for Biden? If that's the case, it's about Trump, and it's a binary. You know, I, I would say the young person who's out in the streets. My two kids have been at Newark, and the ones you don't know, Thomas and Caroline, have been out there in Brooklyn going to these things. I, uh, I, I would say to them, it is binary. And if Trump gets his people out and the people that don't like Trump don't show up, he could win. And, uh, and you'll be stuck with that immorally, I think. It's your responsibility to use that vote. Uh, we'll go out and vote third party, I suppose, if there's any decent third party candidates here. But I think it's about Trump. I really do think the world from New Delhi to Bangkok, to anywhere in the world that's going to pick up a paper the next day, Trump's reelected. Now, I can imagine Americans picking the guy up by accident or to make a point. But to put him back in for a total of eight years, I don't think I know America anymore. And I, and, and I think you lose, your, you lose your Republican Party forever, by the way. I think the party for the next 50 years becomes the party of Trump, and it becomes a Trumpist party um, in the form of Tom Cotton, Donald Trump Jr., um, a cast of characters that uh, a lot of folks in the middle would not recognize. A lot of people like General uh, General Mattis, um, the Mike Mullins, the George W. Bushes, they don't recognize that Republican Party. Well, it'll be a party of Tom Cotton versus uh, Nikki Haley. That's right. That'll be the party. That's right. Very right way. Very right way. Very hawkish, too. Chris, I uh, really appreciate the, the time you've given me here today. I want to close out by just talking about your career, kind of big picture. Um, I also point a personal privilege. Um, people know you from Hardball, obviously, and, and I was on that show with you and I really enjoyed it. But my favorite show that you did, and I think I may have told you this before, is the Chris Matthews show on NBC. Uh, it was it was styled after the McLaughlin Group, and I and I love that show. I grew up what, but pretty pitiful of a 16, 17 year old kid. Uh, waking up on Sunday morning and watching that at 10 in the morning. But I love that show because I think it gave you an opportunity to have a conversation in a way very different sometimes than what the hardball format allowed you to do. Um, I've never actually talked to you a lot about that show. Um, I imagine McLaughlin was like one of your influencers um, as you were coming up in the industry. Well, it's four people, four people and me. And it was always balanced, men and women. I think we had a pretty good diversity. We were ahead of most people on that, and I think uh, we rehearsed on. I rehearsed with the producers on Thursday, and then we taped on Friday. Now, my wife is a former anchor woman at DC, Kathleen. She says you can't do a show like that anymore because so much happens between taping time around noon 
on Friday, which is McLaughlin with all those shows for Friday afternoon. Uh, by the time, but you know what? We only had to do over a show like once. So, yeah, I think very little happens between Friday afternoon and those days. But today, everything is hour by hour. You know, I I liked it because with journalists, opinion people, and straight reporters, people thoughtful people like Bob Woodward and David, you know, Ignatius and you know, we had Campbell Brown, we had Caddy Kay, we had Andrea Mitchell, we had <coughs> John Meese, and we had we had thoughtful people. And it was a little slower than McLaughlin, uh, but um, I loved it. I loved it. It's just that the way syndication works, we were getting great numbers in New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, huge numbers in Washington. And yet when you they would show up in L.A. because out now in San Francisco, you know, because the time difference, the football games come on, you know, really early. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they got to squeeze it in before the football games, and it's uh, there wasn't much time for that for our kind of show. You know, that's what happened. Well, I love that show. Um, also, just want to talk about your style as a kind of a journalist, commenter, former staffer, um, which actually I kind of think is a little more in vogue now. Um, than maybe most people might kind of think of when they think of you. Um, when I go on Twitter, what I see is a bunch of the journalists who I follow, right? P- Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times. They they feel like they can't not have an opinion of this president and of this time that we're in. I think most people who understand your biography understand that you're, you're a tad more. I don't think you're a far to the left liberal, but I think you're, you know, left of center. Um, and I think that that's reflected in your journalism. Um, but it feels like that's more accepted now than maybe it was, say, 20 years ago. Maybe, you know, you're a journalist, so I'd be curious as to kind of your take on that. But And you're a columnist, too, so I, I understand that um, you, you had a certain perspective. Look, I'm not a media critic, Joel. I always think like a baseball player shouldn't talk about other baseball players. It always looks cheap. When you're interviewed in the paper, in the sports pages, it always sounds like, who do you talk about the, the, the shortstop when you're the pitcher? I mean, everybody's got their own jobs. Um, I really like, uh, I like the idea of doing my commentary at the end of the show. I like doing it that way. Uh, for me, that worked for me. I, I do not think one side is right all the time. When I look at the... Uh, it's been going on in the streets the last few days, last week. I think there's a lot going on. And you can't generalize about all of it. The looting is different than the protester. The protesters who's used their voices as opposed to throwing stuff are different people. And not just different methods, they're different moralities and whatever. And I think um, it's very hard to watch the networks, the cable networks, and find someone who's truly trying to get that nuance down, to try to understand. The problem is, we are polarized. The media is polarized. The problem is the president doesn't hear the American voice in those crowds. Why doesn't he hear the American voice in that crowd? It is an American voice. It's us. It's, it's black people, mixed couples. It's white kids who are living in urban areas because they want to live in that gritty American urban area. They want to be in that world. They want to be part of that culture, share it. There's, that's what my kids. There are people that are just down and out who haven't had a break in life. Maybe they haven't done the right things in life, the right choices, but they're angry too. And there are people that are exploiting it. These are all true facts. And, we, and you and I know they're true facts. It's like, at some point though, what got to me about the police shootings was every time one of these things happen, they happen like almost like police uh, School shootings, you know, these things that happen in our culture, which is bad. Unique to us, unique to Americans. And I go, well, let's look at this case. There's this guy in North Carolina, there's a guy running away, he shoots him in an open field. That cop is guilty. That guy shooting a felon, sure. Talking about Walter Walter Scott in South Carolina, right, right. Yeah, you can, you can, can, I don't know what the technicality is, but that was an unjustified killing. That guy wasn't threatening anybody, just escaping from a car situation. I don't even remember the exact situation. Then you know, the Ferguson case was tri- was tricky, too. Well, how many feet away was it? Was he really threatening? I wanted to know. I always wanted to know the figures. Well, it, it finally reached the point where I said, with this one, with Floyd, Mr. Floyd, and his brother's been amazing. 
Enough already. Enough. I don't want to hear any more. This is, this is becoming a pattern you can't ignore. It's happening again and again and again. Something is wrong in the attitude towards human life. And so I think that changed with me. And I do like the, the Amtrak motto, which you know in the training. You see something, say something. And we had to all start saying something. Silence is consent, especially among white people. Silence is consent. And we got to stop consenting. And I really think that's what's changed the last week or two. Uh, Chris, I, I think that's a, a, a good thought that I would, I think uh, most people would be good to follow. We, we actually, you know, just a, a thought here. Um, I think the center has shifted in a really short period of time. And I think a lot of folks, mostly um, white folks, my white friends and colleagues, are struggling to kind of find the right, you know, we look at the quarterback for the New Orleans Saints that got in trouble, you know, Drew Brees. And it, I was listening to another show, and they said he's he's been saying the kind of same thing about the flag for years. And in two weeks, that became a, a position that was indefensible. And it's interesting that it, it you know, I compare the George Floyd murder to the, you know, World War One. You know, I'm a kind of a strange historian. The Franz Ferdinand assassination, World War One. World War One didn't, like, Franz Ferdinand's assassination itself did not start the war but it was the final straw and floyd's murder it feels like was the final straw when you add it to arbery when you add it to coronavirus when you add it to years of police brutality when you add it to a president that disrespects part of the country and you add it to just the increased polarization the floyd murder this is one terrible act that happened to an innocent black man but that's just the latest thing Right. It's not that was the trigger. That was the trigger moment. Well, you know, my dad was a court stenographer. He was the the dean of court reporters in Philadelphia. He wrote down what happened in court. He saw the worst. You know, domestic relations court, criminal court. Oh, God, juvenile court. He every day just filled with bad stuff. Every day coming home with his head. But he was very honest about it. And he was a moderate conservative. But he said the police would beat up people on the way back to the station house every night. When they picked up a kid, they beat him up first. The first punishment was in the car. You know? So this isn't new, but you're right. It's the last straw. But the idea that the police have a uh, an option to administer punishment on the way to the station house, that's old school stuff. But you know what we're talking about. And it's the license they had and uh, not to kill. Well, because we trusted, we there was a point where I think the center of the country trusted them in their judgment, and I think that is also what's changed too. African Americans have not have lacked trust for police for a very, very long time, but the center of the country, by that I mean mostly the white center of the country, I think now, and 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 what's what's exacerbated it is you've had these young white people who are in the streets and these young journalists who are also on the other end of police brutality now, too. So it's... Why is that? Joe, why are they feeding up these guys? I don't get it. I don't get it either. They've got a camera. I mean, you got the guy who was in Louisville, and the the police officer is, is shoot. He's aiming the gun at the, at the camera. It's the most amazing... I mean, along with just being grotesque, yeah. it's the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. You know, they arrested the reporter on CNN, the young Afro-Caribbean reporter... Omar Jimenez, who was as delightful as can be, right? And as I, I could just tell you, that is the way that most black fathers teach their black sons how to talk to police. It's a conversation my dad had, me, we, had with me and my brothers when we were about eight or nine years old. He followed it to a T. Where do you want me to be? What's wrong, sir? How can I help you? And the officer didn't have the judgment to read the situation and say, I don't need to give this guy a hard time, but he did it anyway. And so that's the, I, I think what, but I think what's happened is this has exposed to the white middle of the country, what black people have been dealing with for a long time. So that's my, you know, I'm not a sociologist. I just occasionally play the one. Though, the cell phone has changed things. Yeah. The cell phone. The readiness of the, people. That brave, that brave 17 year old. That brave seventeen-year-old who took the who took the video of Floyd. I mean, you know, the the most um, heartbreaking thing I've seen is 
Floyd's daughter, there's the NBA player who grew up with George Floyd, who had his daughter on his shoulders. And she just said, you know, daddy changed the world. I it just, I, you know, as I'm getting older, Chris, it doesn't take much to get me emotional, but that got me emotional because I want that to be her view of her father. I don't want her to view the final eight minutes of his life and those awful moments that he had to suffer. I want her to think of her father as a change agent. And so I hope for her as she grows up that she keeps that center. Yeah. It's still, I'd like to hear, uh, hard to get honest accounting but you gotta wonder those three other cops that were just uh, indicted yesterday by the attorney general uh, what were they thinking they they weren't doing it but they were saying so what why would they say so what why would they just uh, they can count to eight minutes we all know you can't hold your breath more than three minutes you know we all know that's life swimming right you can't do that you go die and uh Chris, you know what's interesting, though? I think it's, I think it's, um, this is somewhat of a controversial point, but I think it's helpful that two of those three other cops were people of color. There was an Asian cop, I believe, and there was a gentleman who did not appear to be traditionally Caucasian. It seemed like he was at least some mix. And I think it tells an important story about that this is not a black, white cop thing. I mean, you know, there are plenty of African-American or, um, you know, cops who come from, um, you know, let's just say different race backgrounds who also, when they put that blue shield on, they turn into a monster. And and I think that's an important story to tell along with this as well. It, yes, there is a white supremacy thing and there is something about white cops and particularly in urban areas, but it also transfers to other cops as well. And I think that's an important way to think about this when we think about how do we solve the problems that we're trying to solve here. Um, but I think you're right about recognition. And um, people, silence, you know, Nixon talked about the, the silent majority. There was something noble. And, you know, part of this greatest generation thing, there's somehow good in silence. I don't like that. I mean, you should speak out. You know, this idea, you know, I'm just a good... American, I, I show up for work every day. I go to church, and I don't I don't cause any trouble. You know, that's not good enough. I agree, you know? Chris. Last question to you, and then I'll let you go to join your family for dinner. Um, you know, folks like me have missed your presence on the screen. Um, we miss kind of hearing from you every night. What are you up to? I, I see you. Obviously, you wrote that great piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Are there other places we can? hear from you obviously i hope a lot of folks get to hear from you here but are you know do you have other things planned you don't have to trade give away any trade secrets but do you have i guess my point would be my point would be um are we going to continue to hear from you i'll put it like that i hope so i think that uh i'm uh i i said the night i left i was going to keep writing keep talking till we meet again i got a book to get done by the end of the year uh, I'm up to 100,000 words, and I'm only up to 1987. <laughs> You're not even around, <laughs> <for> you. <laughs> and I've got another 50 or 100,000 words to go in that book. Um, I've worked on one of my books is going to be made into a TV series. I'm, I'm teaching uh, starting pretty soon at uh, Fulbright University over in Vietnam. It's an interesting option. Um, I'm working on some other projects. Um, keep writing, keep thinking, talking like you. And I really appreciate you having me on, Joel. It's nice to. The, I want to listen. People say, start listening, Matthews. Start listening to. That's right. You're one of the young people I'm listening to. So. Uh, well, I, 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 the last thing I'll say is, um, look for kind of a young cub like me who, um, I, you know, really in a lot of ways, I mean, my career kind of like follows yours. I was a staffer, and um, now I'm kind of trying my hand at this media thing. Um, I can't tell, and I said this on Twitter when you decided to leave the show, but um, the, the experience of being on your show was an arrival, and it, it announced an arrival, and that is invaluable to someone like me, and so I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful um, that you continue to allow me to join the conversation, and I'm grateful that you spent some time with me this afternoon, and I really do appreciate it in a, in a tough time. Go, go for it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it, Joel. Thank you so much.
again, we had Chris Matthews here, uh, man of many affiliations, talents, most notably MSNBC Hardball, formerly the Chris Matthews Show, Tip O'Neill, Jimmy Carter, um, writing books, writing TV series, etc. This is Joel Payne with the Here Comes the Pain podcast presented by Hip Politics Podcast Network. And we very much appreciate your time. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much.